All right. Well, again, welcome back to Hope Lower Town. Glad you're able to make it this morning. Those of you who don't know me, my name is Brian, uh, lead pastor here, and um, excited to be in week four now of prayers. We've just been looking at different prayers uh, that we find in the Bible. And so next week, uh, we're going to still be in the same series, uh, but we're just going to be looking at um, prayers that are revolving around the birth of Christ. And so we'll kind of get into the Christmas season by still looking at at prayers. And so uh, I know I'm, I'm excited about a couple of those, but uh, today is a is a bigger one as well. So I, I asked you to uh, maybe talk to each other and, and, and look at maybe some best um, observations of sacrificial love. Um, anybody have any that you're able to, to shout out and maybe just say, this is what I thought of and this is what came to mind? Anybody? Anything? Wow. It's great. Some riveting conversations, I guess. Anybody? Anything? Elf. Elf? Sacrificial love of elf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, all right. He's going, he's doing everything he possibly can to go find his dad, right? Yeah, all right. That's good. All right, elf. All right, that's a good enough one. Um, <laughs> okay, that's great. We're going to talk a little bit more about that specifically in the sermon today. Uh, looking at John chapter 17, it's a, it's a longer passage. Uh, which we'll read through. We're not going to spend the whole, we're not going to, I'm not going to go through every single word line by line like I normally would do because of its length. Um, and again, just, just so you know, and parents, just so you know, I, I'm, I'm a dad, like I've got kids and I don't even hear kids anymore. So if you're like, my kids is super distracting. No, they're not. Uh, they're only distracting to people who don't have kids. Uh, and so, because <laughs> I don't even think about it. <laughs> I, I don't even, I don't even hear it anymore. Um, okay. Uh, so John chapter 17, uh, we're going to be walking, looking at at least a portion of this. And so I've titled this sermon, and then the world will know. But again, as always, we can't just read a passage of scripture without getting into a little bit of the context. And so in John chapter 17, what we're going to be looking at the entire chapter, um, it says, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed. And so just even with starting off the new chapter uh, in John chapter 17, there's a little bit of clue like, hey, maybe context helps. Uh, after Jesus said this, after he said what? What is it that he said that will enlighten us unto what he's about to pray? And so in John chapter 16, then we, we get this. It's just a, this is just right above what, what I just read there in John chapter 17. Then Jesus' disciples said, now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. And now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Do you now believe, Jesus replied, a time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered, each one to your own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone for my father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me, you may have peace in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So just keep in mind that word trouble. You're going to have trouble because he's about to pray something that might sound a little bit contradictory uh, to that. So what, what's happening there? Just keep that in mind. So again, just he's saying, hey, you're all going to leave me. You're all going to abandon me. Uh, I'm going to be alone, but I'm not going to be alone. My father is with me. And, and there's going to be some turbulent times that are happening. So that's, that's going on. We skip to the end. So this is right after the prayer. This is at the beginning of chapter 18. And when he had finished praying, Jesus left the disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. Over to their side, there was a garden and he and his disciples went into it. And what we know is the garden of Gethsemane and Judas, 
who betrayed him knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. And so Judas came to the garden guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials of the chief priests and the Pharisees. And they were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And, and, and there in our English translation, they, for whatever reason, add the word he. That's not in the original text. It's just the I am. And this is, has references back to Moses when Moses is at the burning bush and, he's, and God is saying, Moses, I want you to go into Egypt and I want you to free my people. And he says, well, who, who what is your name? What, well, who should I say is who sent me to free the Israelites? And it's that I am. And it's exactly what Jesus is saying here. I am, Jesus said. And Jesus, the traitor, was standing there with them and I don't have the, the whole story here, but after, right after that, it says they all, they all got knocked over. They all got, they all got blown over as soon as he says, I am. And they all get knocked over. And again, they stand up and he's like, sorry, who? I couldn't hear you. Who is it you need? Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he says, I am. So that's the context. And so what happens in between these two, these two bookends or, or whatever you want to call it of, hey, you're all going to leave me. There's going to be... Uh, some, some horrible times, things that are happening. I'm going to pray. And then, I, and then it goes immediately into the execution of Jesus. So I think, that, I think it just adds a little bit of weight uh, to the prayer that Jesus is about to pray to the Father. So that's the context. So now, now we're going to read the whole thing at once. But again, I want you to keep some eyes, uh, your eye out for themes. We're going to focus in on just a particular couple of verses. Um, but I do, I do think it's helpful to read the entire prayer. And so Anytime a, a writer now or back in the day, uh, when they repeat phrases or words, that's usually to get our attention about something. And so uh, you're going to hear words repeated like glory and world and unity and one or oneness. And so that's an important thing. Another aspect of this passage that I'm not going to spend time looking at necessarily, other than this aspect right now, uh, C.S. Lewis is well known, and apparently maybe Thomas Aquinas said it first, I don't know, but C.S. Lewis, he's allowed to take credit for it because he actually wrote about it in Mere Christianity. But C.S. Lewis talks about Jesus and says he's either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Um, in, in other words, he, he can't just be a good teacher. Right? And this prayer, Jesus, and people are like, oh man, I don't know, Jesus never really claimed that he was like God. Yes, he does. <laughs> when he uses that phrase, I am, he for sure is claiming that he is God. I am. I am the ising one. I am the self-existent eternal one. That's what he's saying when he says that. And he's either a liar, he is a lunatic, or he's Lord. If I got up here this morning and said, I am, in that phrase, and said, no, I am the self-eternal, self-existing one, you would, you would hopefully, you'd walk out. You wouldn't want to listen to something I'm going to teach because I'm a lunatic or I'm a liar or, or maybe I'm Lord, but I, I don't think that's the case. And I don't think you'd think that I'm Lord. And so I'm just going to read this passage. Um, again, it's kind of lengthy, but just let me uh, get through this and then, um, and then we'll dig into a, a smaller passage or a smaller portion of this. So John chapter 17 says this. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and pray. Again, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's just about to be betrayed by his best friend. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all the people that he might give eternal life to all those that you have given him. 
Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. And now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words that you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those that you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours and all you have is mine and glory has come to me through them. And I remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you, have, you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. And while I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name that you gave me. And none has been lost except for the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so they may have the full measure of joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they're not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but you would protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself, that they may too be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those that you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though you know the world, sorry, righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order the love that you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. That is John chapter 17. Again, we're not going to be looking at that. It's kind of split up into three different parts. And maybe you picked up on this, that Jesus is specifically referring to his relationship with the father. That's verses one through five. And then Jesus talks about specifically in context about his disciples, the 12. And if you caught it in there, he says, I've, I've protected. I've, all of them have stayed faithful to me, except the one who was doomed for destruction. They're specifically referencing Judas. But then in verses 20 through 26, which I want to focus on is that Jesus and all who follow him. Jesus is praying for all those who follow after him. This uh, passage, if you were to open your Bible and look at this, there might be a, a title at the top of it that says the high priestly prayer. And it is that. It is this prayer that Jesus is, is, is praying on behalf of us. He's interceding for those of us who are followers of him. And But yet I want to focus specifically on this passage here where he says, my prayer is not for them alone. And specifically, they're the 12, my disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. 
And so this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus, this, this should be incredibly encouraging. That the creator of the universe on the night that he was betrayed prayed for you that every single one of us has have heard the message that was taught by the disciples, by the apostles, that we would believe in Jesus. And so if we have bent the knee to King Jesus, if we are a follower of Jesus, and this prayer, this prayer was for you. This is a prayer that Jesus, uh, for Jesus and all who follow him, that he prayed. So I just want to focus in on a couple things on this one aspect. The first one, and just highlight a couple, couple aspects, and then we'll be, we'll be done. First one is oneness. It says this, verse 21, that all of them, those who have heard the message and believed the message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. This is something I think culturally that we are struggling with, not just within the church or even within the capital C church of different denominations and different aspects of Christianity. But there's a lot of, a lot of confusion. There's a lot of argument, uh, argumentation that's going on right now in our culture. It could be on any number of things. And I was thinking of, of oneness and I, and I was reminded of the phrase, all for one and one for all. Can someone please explain to me why there's always four musketeers in a picture of the three musketeers? Who is the fourth one? Who is that? No, D'Artagnan's a musketeer, isn't he? Of course I read the book. <laughs> okay, so D'Artagnan's not a musketeer, but it's the three musketeers, and yet D'Artagnan is always with the three musketeers. All right, whatever. The whole point is this, all for one and one for all. What's that mean? <laughs> right, it means they got each other's back, right? Because I did watch the movie, uh, Man in the Iron Mask, uh, that involved the three musketeers. Apparently there was four. Maybe the king is the fourth one, I don't know. They got each other's back, right? There's something in, in oneness that is encouraging, right? That, that is edifying. We could talk about our vision statement. What are we, what are we united in, right? Our vision statement uh, is, is to honor God by helping as many people as possible become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Great, right? That is, that is very generic, right? We could probably Google First National Bank's vision statement and it would probably sound something very similar. Maybe not honor God, but there's definitely something about community and, and people and, and let's lift people up, right? That's, that's just part of vision statements. Right? We can shorten it the way that we do and we could talk about gospel and community on mission. Okay, great. What, well, what's that mean? Or we could talk about, well, being on mission in, in Lower Town, being in our neighborhood, being in our community. Excuse me. What does that look like, right? We talked about the, the school down the street, the St. Paul Art School, the public school, uh, which, by the way, we're going to be doing a lot for them uh, over the Christmas season. Uh, we're gonna be doing like a backpack drive and fill that with some goodies. And so I'll keep you um, posted on that in the weekly email this week or um, just the next Sunday, we'll be talking about it. <clears throat> this could be the idea of, of just greeting people, welcoming people when they walk in the door. Uh, statistics say that people make up their mind about a church within the first five minutes, right? That's true. It has nothing to do with me. People, listen, and can I get an amen? People do not go to church to listen to a lecture for 40 minutes, right? That's just not why people go to church. 
um, that there's relationships, there's community that happens and revolving around the gospel that is proclaimed, but that's not why people go to church. They go to church to be with one another, to see one another and to be seen. I think about our kids' ministry and I think about my kids, that they are other people that need to be here, need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And so I thank you for those who work that. Think of just the, the gospel songs that we sing about God, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, how it points people to Jesus. That's gospel and community on mission. And we need to be united in that. Next couple of weeks, not of December, but the first couple of weeks of January, we're going to be specifically honing in on, uh, on mission. What is our goal? What is our vision? Uh, we usually do this every January. And yet the last couple of Januaries, we started 2020 with 2020 vision. We had all these grandiose things that we were going to do. And God was like, plans, you got plans? Doubt it, right? We're going to shut that down. And now we can get back onto that. The next aspect that Jesus talks about here is the world. Now, what does world mean? Uh, maybe you've been following Artemis 1 on its uh, way to the moon. Uh, it looks a little CGI to me. I'm just kidding. I, I follow it. I follow it a lot. I love it. I think it's like one of the coolest things ever. Um, I, I hope that we get to see people on the moon again in our lifetime. I've never seen it. Obviously, I'm not that old. Um, so... What does world mean though? World means cosmos, right? It, it, uh, that's, the, that's literally the Greek word. Cosmos uh, is, is, is the world, is the universe. And that word, word is used by the apostle John in his gospel here um, over nine, or nine, used 96 times, the word world. Now, sometimes in context, that means the created world. But most often when we read that word world in the passage that I just read there, it means something a little bit different than just the created world. Um, there's a gentleman by the name of Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield. He goes by B.B. Warfield, uh, but I just thought it was cool to type out Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield. B.B. Um, Warfield, though, he was preaching a sermon on God's immeasurable love, specifically on John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And that idea of world, again, what, what does it mean the cosmos? Does it mean this created universe or is it something else? World is not here a term of extension that is God so loved the world. Does it mean he loves everybody? He loves everybody that walks around in the world. Does he mean the planet earth? What is, it's not what it means. It's not a term of extension so much as a term of intensity. Its primary connotation is ethical and the point of its employment is not to suggest that the world is so big that it takes a great deal of love to embrace it all, but the world is so bad that it takes a great kind of love to love it at all and much more to love it as God has loved it when he gave his son for it. The world represents sinful humanity and it is not worthy of God's saving love. Apart from the love of God, the world stands under God's condemnation. That's what world is. World is just sinful humanity that when we read it in John, the gospel of John. And so I wanna just go back. Again, there's a couple that I didn't highlight because it was talking about uh, when the world was created. I'm not talking about when sinful humanity was created. That is context. Um, even though it's the same cosmos, same word, you can get a little bit of key, but John does this a lot. 
that they may be in us so that the sin, that sinful humanity may believe that you have sent me. Those whom you gave me out of the sinful world, I pray for them. And I'm not praying for the sinful world, sinful humanity, but for those that you have given me, I will remain in sinful humanity no longer, but they are still in sinful humanity. But I say these things while I'm still in sinful humanity, for they are not of sinful humanity any more than I am of sinful humanity. My prayer is not that you would take them out of sinful humanity. They are not of sinful humanity, even as I am not of it. As you sent me into sinful humanity, I sent them into sinful humanity. That sinful humanity may believe, that sinful humanity would know, right? That's what world is in context in John, all of the gospel of John. There's a lot of this idea of sinful humanity. I'm sorry, I missed one. And sinful humanity does not know you. There's a lot here, right? And so when we read it this way, it changes our perspective about God's love, about Christ's love for us. It's a term of intensity, intense love that John is trying to get across and that Jesus is getting across as he prays this idea for the world multiple times in his prayer. You might be here today, you might be asking the question, how is it that God could love me? That's a great question. But the Bible teaches that even when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That when we are and were sinful humanity, that he loved us. That's that intense love. The next aspect that I want to highlight is this unity for the gospel. It says, I have given them, those are those who are followers of Jesus. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we were, we are one. In them, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity, period. Then the world will know. That's why I titled this sermon, Then the World Will Know. How is the world gonna know that you sent me, that you sent Jesus and that you have loved them as you've loved me? How is the world gonna know this? Unity amongst believers. That's mind-boggling. What is it about our unity that just screams to a watching world something is different about them? Again, maybe going back to the three musketeers analogy or the four musketeers, whatever it is. I trust you. There's a trust going on here. This does not mean that D'Artagnan and pathos never had a disagreement. It's probably not pathos, whatever. You know what I'm saying? It's not that they never had a disagreement amongst themselves. Hey, what's the best way to protect the king? We should go over here. No, we should go that way. Ah. They can disagree, but when the decision is made, they go, yes, this is what we're doing. That we are united one for all and all for one. I probably messed that up. They are doing this all together. And when we have a vision and whatever that may be uh, specifically for our community, this Hope Lower Town, sure, let's be united in that. But the bigger statement of let's be unified with others and with the world inside and outside so that, so that people will know that we love each other. But when we're backstabbing each other, when, when, when I'm stabbing you in the back and you're stabbing, there's no, I'm not thinking of anything. No, this is not like a, like a, what do you call it? Like a, like a way for me to vent. You know what I mean? Like that's not what's happening. I'm just saying, let's not do that that you can be in disagreement and still have unity. And I know some of you feel that way about me and about hope and whatever it may be. 
but to know that we can lean on each other and trust each other, to know that we've got each other's back. That's unique. That is incredibly unique. And it's through that kind of love that we can show the world the intense love of God. That, again, that sacrificial love. Number four, love of the Father. And again, I'm just gonna, this is just kind of the last couple of verses here of this passage. It says, Father, I want those that you have given me to be with me where I am, to see my glory, the glory that you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and I will continue to make you known in order that the love that you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. That there's this fatherly love that we see at the end of this prayer. Last point I wanna make is actually not a point of what we see in these verses, but of what's not there. And Jesus doesn't necessarily pray for protection, at least not the way that we would pray for protection necessarily. By protection, this isn't safety. I pray that I'm not harmed. It's not what happens, even though specifically here about the disciples, the 12, he says, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name and the name you gave me so they may be one as we are one. What does he mean by protect? Because either Jesus is a terrible prayer and his prayers aren't answered by his heavenly father or he means something different. Because what we do know about the 12 disciples is they all die horrific, gruesome, excruciating deaths other than the apostle John. And they tried, tried boiling him in oil, didn't work. So they put him on an island for the rest of his days. Well, it's maybe Jesus, I don't know, God just didn't hear Jesus' prayer. No, or is there something else that's going on? Is there something about, about protecting their faith that they would be they would hold fast, to use the author of Hebrews language, they would hold fast to me, that I am in them and they are in me and, and vice versa. And we hold on to one another. We use this phrase within Reformed theology, right? Of preservation of the saints. God preserve them and their faith in me. Make it so that no one can pluck them out of my hand. Protect their soul. Because protection, according to Jesus, means trouble, as we saw earlier on. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says this, or at least the passage says this, let me, Matthew 16, verse 21. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Pause. Does this mean that we shouldn't pray for what we would call protection or safety? No, of course not. Jesus prays that in the garden of Gethsemane. He prays, Father, remove this cup from me. He knows he's about to be tortured and executed. He's, got, he's saying, God, please remove this. And God shows up and says, no, this is the only way for salvation. But what we do know is that when we go through suffering and actual non-personal safety, and he's not, God doesn't show up and say, hey, everything's gonna be okay. Rather, he says, I'm here with you. Not, hey, you're gonna be removed from this pain and this suffering, this thorn in the flesh. Rather, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. So again, Jesus is saying, I'm gonna die. I'm gonna be killed on the third day, be raised to life. Verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you are a stumbling block to me. 
You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And Jesus said to his disciple, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And whoever will lose their life for my sake will find it. I asked you the question of, of uh, I don't know, a movie or a book. The one that came to my mind this week, and maybe it's a spoiler alert, probably not, is um, this one. Uh, with John Krasinski, Jim from The Office, called, what is it? A Quiet Place, thank you. Man, I just totally went blank. That's why you put things in your notes. A Quiet Place, first one. I don't know, I, don't, I haven't seen the second one yet. I don't know how they do it. I don't get it. Main guy, well, here it is. Here's what happens. John, not John, whatever his character's name is, he uh, has a daughter who is hearing impaired, who's deaf. And has a little boy who, there's these big alien monster things. It's a horror movie. And, and, and these alien monsters kill his little boy. I know, it's really intense. Sorry, I forgot there's kids in here. It's all good. Everyone's happy. Woohoo! <laughs> Santa Claus is coming to town. Uh, and anyways, boy, what a bad example. This is what happens. Here's what happens. His daughter, they're all about to be taken over by these alien monsters. Uh, and, and he runs outside because they're attracted to sound. That's why it's called The Quiet Place. And his daughter has been struggling the entire movie thinking dad doesn't care about me, dad doesn't love me. She feels responsible for her little brother's death. And he runs out there and he starts making loud noises so that these monsters would be attracted to him and so his daughter and his family could get away safely. And in this moment of sacrificial death, he looks at his daughter and he signs, I love you, I have always loved you in sign language. And then he starts screaming and the monsters come in and take his life rather than his family. There's examples of sacrificial love all around us, right? But in the story, in the story of Jesus, the one who doesn't deserve to die, one who is good, one who is righteous, looks at us who feel guilty and shame for the wrongdoing that we have committed. And he looks at us before going onto the cross and he says, I love you. I have always loved you. You are a sinful humanity, but my love is so intense that I can't help but take your place. In conclusion, the world will know of the sacrificial love of Christ and we are truly unified inside these walls and outside. Last week, I mentioned uh, uh, Dane Ortland, uh, pastor somewhere in the world. I don't remember where. Uh, Dane Ortland, he's a pastor and writer. And, and he, in his church, he, he concludes, uh, well, at some point in his service, he uses this phrase, that gospel plus grace plus time. Again, there's no equals. It's not, a, it's not a equation. The idea is that I believe the gospel Jesus has died for my sins. That's it, period. That's salvation. But we need to give ourselves some grace because a lot of times we look at maybe Jesus dying on the cross and say, I'm not worthy. He showed you grace. He loves you. So give yourself grace and let's give each other grace when we talk about unity and then specifically time. There are gonna be moments and instances, I think we've learned that over the last couple of years, that it doesn't take much to spark up something that we disagree on, and it's just easier to run away from our problems. Let's give ourselves some grace and some time when we talk about this, talk about unity. At Hope, every week we do this, we have a time of communion. So we're gonna do that again this morning, that we have elements up here 
the, the bread that represents the body of Christ, the juice that represents his blood. Um, and as we partake of these elements, there's nothing magical, there's nothing spiritual, there's not, your sins are not removed, there's, no, there's nothing like that. This is simply a time to remember what it is that Christ has done for us. That he loved us enough to give of his life sacrificially, knowing the suffering, knowing the pain, but seeing the joy beyond the suffering, knowing that we would all be unified in him, that we would all become one. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, and I would love for you to partake of these elements. Uh, with us this morning. Let me pray. And then the worship team's gonna come back up and sing two more songs and then we will be dismissed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together this morning. Um, thank you for your word. I thank you for Jesus Christ who prayed for us uh, that everyone who's about to walk forward and partake of these elements, that he specifically prayed for them and prayed for us to be unified in his death and in his burial and in his resurrection that it's through the shedding of his blood that we can pray to you. So God, I just pray now that you'd be honored, you'd be glorified as we worship you, not just through song, but through repentance of sin, through confession, uh, through unity with one another, that we partake of this meal together as followers of you. And it's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.